Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 27, Daniel chapter 9, the second continuation. Well, we'll not quite finish Daniel 9 today, but we'll get close. That's because Daniel 9 verses 24 through 27 are so difficult and controversial. But they're crucial. So we're going to spend more time with it today and we'll begin with a very brief review of what we studied last week. Now these verses form the the core of the end times prophecies. Therefore, of the many end times doctrines. So if you care at all about the end times I think you do here's where you begin now the first thing I want to reaffirm however is we're not going to arrive at a strict doctrine when we conclude this study because there's none to be had although each of the several thousand Christian denominations has produced some doctrine or another about the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy Each doctrine necessarily involves a a combination of, of speculation and a requirement that that doctrine upholds their other fundamental faith pillars. So substantial liberties are often taken to avoid making the 70 weeks doctrines conflict with other long held church viewpoints that are considered untouchable. Further, if Underline if Daniel's 70 weeks is speaking about unfulfilled prophecy, which, by the way, is not at all agreed upon by Bible academics in various denominations, then we have to be humble enough to admit that all we're getting is a peek through a fuzzy lens at what is coming. And by no means do we get a well-defined program Now, as Sir Isaac Newton said, and I paraphrase him, Bible prophecy is put there for us to have hope in the future. It's not there for us to know or to see the future. And that hope is realized when the prophecy actually comes about. And then in hindsight, we're able to behold the mastery of the Lord over time and space and the faithfulness and the glory of God at work. So we must not think that the Bible scriptures give us sufficient information to come to any inalterable conclusion as to how exactly this 70 weeks will play out or precisely when it will happen or exactly what it's going to look like. Our job as believers is to know as much as we can of inspired scripture so that we can sufficiently be armed with the truth. And that so we can recognize the fulfillment of prophecy when it happens. But we only have one source for that knowledge and it is holy scripture. It's not man-made doctrines and it's not speculative novels. Therefore, my objective is to present to you a range of likely possibilities 
as to what the various aspects of the 70 weeks prophecy seems to be telling us as taken directly from the Bible. Now I want to establish a set of bookends, if you would, giving us the outer boundaries of what could be the reasonably expected outcomes. And yet at the same time, we will probably discard some of the possibilities that have been asserted by church authorities and Bible scholars over the centuries as settled doctrine because the passage of history has proved them wrong. Or these doctrines fundamentally disagree with Scripture. And the first of this range of possibilities to address is just what the 70 weeks is indicating by way of time. Does the 70 weeks consist of literal weeks? Or does week mean the time period is 70 months? Or does it mean 70 years? Or 70 something else? The most common interpretation is that it means 70 weeks of years or 70 sevens or 70 times 7. All those things meaning the same thing. Which equals 490 years. And as we discussed last time, the Hebrew word usually translated in our Bibles as week is Shabuah, or which more literally means sevens. So the term weeks is actually more of a mirage than it is a problem that we have to find a way around. The next most popular interpretation is that the 70 weeks or 70 sevens is nothing but a symbolic number. So it doesn't indicate any particular length of time. And while that interpretation seems the least likely to me, that doesn't mean it's impossible. And I demonstrated to you that there is a passage in Matthew 18 that speaks of forgiving a brother 70 times 7. 490 times. And these words are credited to Yeshua and as we discussed, it's self-evident that this cannot possibly mean that Christ's instruction is we should forgive someone up to including 490 times, but on that 491st time, well, we can quit forgiving them. Therefore, in Matthew, we have some evidence for the term 70 times 7 merely being symbolic of a God-ordained, large, but indeterminate number. Even though, of course, the two times that we see this term, 70 times 7, in the Bible, they're in two different contexts. And for the purpose of additional context... What we are reading in the last several verses of Daniel 9 is the angel Gabriel presenting Daniel with an urgent oracle brought from the Lord. See, that context is quite important for our understanding because it's clear there's only two parties present. Only two parties involved in this passage. Thus, when Gabriel addresses Daniel using the possessive pronoun your. The only possible way to understand it, since Daniel's alone with Gabriel, 
is that the your obviously refers to Daniel. And so if we take nothing else from the study of the prophecy of the 70 weeks, which is at the heart of end times matters as far as the church is concerned, it ought to be the Christians are in no way mentioned or alluded to. That is the first words of Daniel 9 verse 24 that are 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. Those words are referring specifically and exclusively to Daniel's people. The Jews. And what is your holy city? It's the only holy city the Jews know of. Jerusalem. So Gentile Christians, listen up. This prophecy was not and never will be directed at you. To us. We'll be affected by it. We will have great benefit derived from it. Absolutely. But only because we have been grafted into the promises and covenants made to Israel by the God of Israel. And that happens by means of our faith and our trust in the Jewish Messiah. Yeshua. Jesus the Christ. But this prophecy of the 70 weeks is aimed strictly at the physical, tangible Jewish people and the Jerusalem of Israel. So with that context in mind, let's again read just the last few verses of Daniel chapter 9. Open your Bibles to page 1112. And we're going to start reading at verse 24. Daniel 9, starting at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city for putting an end to transgression, for making an end of sin, for forgiving iniquity, for bringing in everlasting justice, for setting the seal on vision and profit, and for anointing the especially holy place. Know therefore and discern that seven weeks... that seven weeks of years will elapse between the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed prince comes. It will remain built for 62 weeks, theoretically of years, with open spaces and moats, but these will be troubled times. Then after the 62 weeks, Mashiach, Messiah, will be cut off and have nothing. The people of a prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. But his end will come with a flood and desolations are decreed until the war is over. He will make a strong covenant with leaders for one week. For half of the week, he'll put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering and on the wing of detestable things, the desolator will come and will continue until the already decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Now last week, I briefly listed 
the six goals that were to occur during this 70 weeks, 490 years. And I told you we'd begin with the final one, anointing the especially holy place, it says. Well, the Hebrew words are Kodesh Kodeshim, and they literally mean the holiest holy. Or in more familiar English grammar, the most holy. Now the word place that we find added in many, probably most, English translations in truth is not there in the Hebrew. So the sixth goal is literally to anoint the most holy. Some scholars have said that therefore this must be referring to Messiah. That is, as the high priest and lord of lords, Christ must be the most holy that they're speaking about. Now naturally, this choice of interpretation has a great deal to do with certain of the particular Bible editor's personal church doctrines. For one thing, such an interpretation allows for a claim that there will be no future temple when Christ is reigning on earth. Rather, these same these editors say, the temple that is described in excruciatingly minute detail in the book of Ezekiel is not real and earthly. It's spiritual. It's heavenly. It's allegorical. Therefore, there will be no physical temple in Jerusalem. There will be no physical sacrifices on the altar. There will certainly be no physical Levite priesthood and so on. So in keeping with certain doctrines that replace everything Israel with the Gentile church, we have this issue that the anointing of the Holy of Holies in a new temple anointing it back into renewed service to God at the same time Christ is returning to reign, that can't work for them and their doctrines. But nowhere in the Bible is the term Kodesh Kodashim, most holy, ever used to refer to a person. Ever. To contend that this sixth goal of Daniel 9 is referring to anointing the Messiah is further refuted when we remember that Messiah, Mashiach, in Hebrew, already means anointed one. So he would have the anointing of the already anointed one. Making Yeshua as the one who is going to be anointed in this passage breaks with scripture, it breaks with practice, it breaks with common sense, and with the biblically established God patterns. Rather, biblically, Kodesh, Kodashim, is always referring to the tabernacle or to the temple's innermost room that in English we usually call the Holy of Holies. Therefore, the list of likely possibilities of what this sixth goal is referring to is a limited one. It is the temple structure, specifically the Holy of Holies. So to give this phrase, follow me now, to give this phrase a little more precise meaning for us, it would have to be to consecrate the Holy of Holies by anointing it into service. That's what it means. But now I want to go back. I want to revisit 
each of these six goals because while the dramatic war of Armageddon, the wicked Antichrist, the rapture, the rebuilding of the temple and all the rest is typically what the church focuses on during uh, concerning these 70 weeks prophecy, we need to keep in mind that God has stated in verse 24 precisely what the entire purpose of these 70 weeks is for. And those dramatic events that modern evangelical and fundamental Christians hold as most important aren't described there. Rather, God has established six goals, six milestones that must take place during that 490 year time frame and those goals, when accomplished, will complete His work of redemption. And again, notice, all of this is aimed at the Jews. All of it. So let's learn all we can about these six goals and how we ought to understand them and how to apply them. And the best way to do that is to consider them in their original Hebrew language. And since you're probably not all fluent in Hebrew yet, I'm going to give you a hand with it. Contained in verse 24, the first goal is usually said to be putting an end to transgression. Now I want you to follow with me in your Bibles because this is all going to be put together. The first goal is usually said to be putting an end to transgression. The Hebrew is la kalei hapasha. La kalei hapasha. La kalei more means to restrain than to end. Now without getting too technical, Kalei can be spelled with or without a he as the last letter of the word. With a he, it does mean to end, to bring to a to, to finish it. But here in verse 24, it's spelled without a he. Therefore, the sense of the word changes to shut up, hold in, restrain. It's even the same word used to describe arresting someone so you could put them in prison. To imprison. So the idea is not that transgression ended and finished. Rather, it is that it is restrained. It's hindered so that it no longer can spread like a malicious virus. The Hebrew word pesha indeed means transgression. And when used in reference to transgressing against God, it is to be taken in the sense of rebellion. So because the goal is in the context of offending God, a good English translation that gets to the heart of the matter might be simply restraining rebellion. That's what it means. Restraining rebellion. So the second goal is usually stated as now as making an end of sin. We're up to goal number two. 
The Ubru, uh, Hebrew is Ulahatom Hataot. Ulahatom Hataot. And Ulahatom means to be finished. But because the term end, we usually hear making an end of sin, because the term end in modern Western words comes closer to meaning abolish in our vernacular, then end for us isn't a good choice of terms. It gives us the wrong impression. To finish, ulahatom means to complete the task, not to abolish the task. The second word is something a person who studies Torah ought to be familiar with. Hataot. Hataot is the plural of hataat. And it is the name of a particular kind of sacrificial offering that's ordained by the law of Moses. And it's used for a specific purpose. A hataat offering is usually translated into English as a sin offering. And while that's generally okay, I prefer to call it a purification offering. You can go back to our study of Leviticus and get a detailed explanation of why I think it's better for our understanding to call it a purification offering. But that said... That a hata'at's purpose is to purify because a person becomes unclean when a sin is committed. So for today's purposes, we're just going to leave it as sin offering so we don't get confused about it. But here's the point that's so critical. I hope it impacts you as it ought to. In almost every English translation we'll see the word hataat translated in Daniel verse 24 not as sin offering but rather just as sin thus the sense we get is the idea that sin is ended what did we just read? making an end of sin that's how it reads in most Bibles So, the sense we get, again, sin is gone. No more sin is possible. It doesn't exist anymore. That's what it seems to mean. But that's factually incorrect. The correct idea is that for some unstated reason, the purpose for the Hata'at sacrificial offering is finished. Its purpose has been fulfilled. There's no more need for sin offerings at the altar. Can you see where this is leading? See, it's a fundamental faith pillar of many Christian churches that at the cross, Christ brought an end to sin. At least He did for all who trust Him. And essentially the doctrine is that sin in the sense that the Hebrews always thought of sin and the way that the Bible had always taught about sin up to Yeshua's crucifixion that is sin as meaning disobedience to the law well that's no more 
Some denominations go so far as to imply that because Christ ended sin, then obviously sinning has become virtually impossible for a true believer. At least that's so in God's eyes, because due to Christ's death, He now overlooks our sins. And then this leads to the next logical conclusion. That since it was the law of Moses that was the code of God's commandments that carefully defined sin, then all this can only mean that since sin's abolished, the law must be abolished. Right? Good logic. And as we've discussed time and time again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua admonished, He warned us against it, He stated that there would be an eternal penalty of our being judged as least in the kingdom of heaven. Not kicked out of the kingdom of heaven, but least in the kingdom of heaven for anybody who thought that He had come to abolish the law or taught other people that He had. I don't want to be on that side of the deal. Bottom line, the second goal that we typically see read, even our complete Jewish Bible, is making an end of sin. It ought to be read as something like to finish or complete the task of the sin offering. That's what it means. And that is, of course, precisely what Messiah did on the cross. Since He was the once and for all sin offering, no more sacrifices of bulls and goats for one's sins are needed. So to summarize, and we're going to do this more than once, goal number one is restrain rebellion, meaning rebellion against God. Goal number two, to finish or complete the sin offering. Now, the third listed goal that is to take place during these 70 weeks of years is, it says, typically, to make reconciliation for iniquity. In Hebrew, this is ule kaper avon. Ule kaper avon. The word kaper ought to sound a little familiar to us. It's from the root word kippur which means atonement, like in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And since atonement is not really a word we hear much among Christians in modern times, Bible editors tend to substitute the word reconciliation for this passage instead. That's not wrong per se. However, it does break the connection between the Torah teaching on atonement and what it is that occurs when a sacrifice is made to God for our sins. Now, this might sound like I'm slicing the onion too thin, but I'm not. You see, it's the act of atonement that results in our reconciliation with God. It's the act of atonement that results in our reconciliation with God. And in the previous goal, finishing the task of the sin offering, the act of the sin offering was the Torah-required means of atonement. Then once the atonement is completed, now a sinner can be reconciled with God. 
First atonement, then reconciliation. So atonement is the means and reconciliation is the hope for result of the sin offering. Translating the next word, avon, to iniquity is a good translation, providing we know what iniquity means. And iniquity, iniquity is sort of the sum total of what sin does to us as human beings. It's because of our sins that we carry iniquity. It's because of our sins that we become perverse in God's eyes. So again, sin and iniquity aren't the same things. And that's why the Hebrew language uses two distinctly words, two distinctly different words for those two terms. Iniquity is the result of sin, but sin is not the result of iniquity. It's a one-way street. So, for our modern English language and, and Western mindsets, the better way to translate and state the third goal is to make atonement for our perverse condition. That's what it's getting at. Our perverse condition before God that has resulted from our sinning against Him. That ends the series of the three so-called negative goals because they all involve wrongdoing on Israel's part. Well now next up is the fourth goal that is typically said in our Bibles to bring in everlasting righteousness. The Hebrew is Ulehabi Olamim Sedek. Ulehabi Olamim Sedek. And Ulehabi means to bring about something, to bring something into being. Bringing in. And Olamim means forever, means perpetual. Sedek, righteousness. So to bring in everlasting righteousness is a very good and apt translation, but just one thing. It must be understood that righteousness, Sedek, is to be recognized as a gift of grace from God. This is not speaking about improved behavior on the part of a former sinner. And this is to be seen in contrast to the first three goals that had to do with transgressions, sin, and iniquity. Only when those first three goals are accomplished can the next three goals occur. Only when sin, transgression, and iniquity are dealt with from a spiritual perspective can eternal righteousness come in. So let's pause and see the sequence. First, Restraining of rebellion against God. Second, finishing the task or the purpose of the sin offering. Third, making atonement for our perverse human condition that's resulted from all that sinning. And then fourth, bringing in everlasting righteousness. The fifth listed goal 
is said to be to seal up vision and prophecy. In Hebrew, this is ve la hatom, hazon ve navi. Ve la hatom, hazon ve navi. Now, ve la hatom just means to put a seal on something, stamp it with a seal. Hazon means a vision. Just like what Daniel's been having, presumably a vision from God. And Navi means prophet. That's right, not prophecy, it means prophet. So to seal up means to give something validation. To seal up means to certify something, to preserve it, to prevent it from being tampered with. Thus it is one thing to seal up prophecy, but it's another thing to seal up the prophet. So the better translation for the modern Westerner here, the best meets with our vernacular, is to validate and preserve the vision and the prophet. Both. This is about the Lord authenticating what has been promised and predicted by means of validating the ones, the prophets, who were the messengers of God's oracles. We can believe them. So, this is a good time to hammer away again. Say it again and again. All five of these goals so far are appointed for Israel. Not the Gentile world. This series of promises is made to Daniel's people. Not to any generic person. And except by the extension of benefits offered through salvation in Jesus Christ, no Gentile would have any place in it at all. So, the list of goals. Restraining rebellion. Completing the task of the sin offering. Making atonement for our perverse human condition. Establishing everlasting righteousness. Preserving vision and profit. And anointing the holy of holies back into service. All of those things are said to have to occur. That's the whole purpose of it. Of this 490 year time span because that time span has been set apart for that purpose by Jehovah God. And all of these things are needed in God's plan to achieve redemption to its fullest. But by definition, the result of all these things happening through Israel is that the conditions of the world are so radically changed that from this point forward it enters us into a new era. An unprecedented era of a worldwide kingdom of God. But now verses 25 and 26 throws us a curveball. And I hope you can handle some basic math. Because we're going to be dealing with several numbers. There's no way around it. This passage tells us that God has divided those 70 weeks into three distinct segments. 
begins with the seven-week segment that's followed by the 62-week segment that's followed by the one-week segment, or assuming a week means seven years, not seven days. Then it begins with a 49-year segment, followed by a 434-year segment, followed by a seven-year segment. 49 plus 434 plus 7 is 490. Basic math. The 49-year segment, which is the first segment, begins the countdown for the 490 total years of the prophecy. And it is said that this is the time span from when the order is given for Jerusalem to be restored and rebuilt until an anointed prince arrives. In other words, whoever is the potentate that is still holding the Jews captive, even if only partially, he will not only finally end completely the Jews' exile, he's going to also order that Jerusalem gets rebuilt. And to order that Jerusalem will be rebuilt is essentially like instituting the Marshall Plan at the end of World War II. That is, the Allies who won the war created a plan to rebuild a decimated Europe, including Germany, for the benefit of the people of each of those war-torn nations. Wise leadership understands you can't send people home to nothing with no hope. It will only lead to more conflict because these people would have nothing to lose. Also notice that this that the termination point of the first segment of 49 years in duration is, according to the wording of the complete Jewish Bible, when an anointed prince comes. But who's this anointed prince? See, now this causes major problems. Therefore, a lot of disagreements among theologians in general. It is said that this Mashiach Nagid, in Hebrew, can only be Christ. But it's historically impossible to claim that it was only 49 years from when the Jews were encouraged to leave the Persian Empire and return to Jerusalem until Christ came. Because even if the exact year of the order to return and rebuild is is disputed a bit, it was sometime in the mid-5th century B.C. That much is pretty much agreed to. Not 100%, but for the most part. Some Bible scholars like Edward Young and Dr. Keel don't have a problem with that huge discrepancy because they subscribe to the idea that the 70 weeks is a purely symbolic number anyway. So no particular amount of years is even contemplated here. However, Dr. Keel even Dr. Keel, somewhat bothered by his own explanation of this first segment of 49 years, historically taking close to 400 years to actually happen, assuming the anointed prince being referred to as Jesus. So another thought is that the grammatical construction of the sentence, wherein in English translations we typically find a comma or a period, after the words, until an anointed prince comes, that's really the cause of the problem, and it's therefore just an artificial problem. 
Thus, the way it's been traditionally punctuated is incorrect. And that's entirely possible. Because in the original Hebrew, there was no punctuation to speak of. It was added long after the fact by Gentile Christian Bible editors. So the troubling passage ought to be translated more like this. And by the way, interestingly, this is found in the King James Version of the Bible. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So see, the idea we find in the King James Version is that we are to add together the seven weeks and the 62 weeks totaling 69 weeks which gives us 483 years. Got your calculators out now, right? Or you need lots of fingers and toes you could share. And so it is to be 483 years from the time that the order is given for Jerusalem to be rebuilt until Messiah arrives. And so although awkwardly stated the seven weeks, this first 49 years, is the time from when the order to rebuild Jerusalem was given until Jerusalem was restored to some level that God agrees amounts to full restoration. Now truthfully, I have no idea how anyone from Daniel's day or for centuries to follow, follow could have made heads or tails out of this. Good luck. Only with the passage of history can we begin to see what actually happened. And even then, doctrinal agendas try to get, into, get in the way and to distort it. Let's lay out some possibilities. Let's see what works. Let's see what doesn't work. The amillennial theological viewpoint and the modern liberal Bible scholarship viewpoint demands that the entire 70 weeks, all 490 years, has to end during the era of Antiochus Epiphanes, each side for their own good reasons. Thus they say that the decree to rebuild Jerusalem didn't come from any earthly king. Rather, the decree to rebuild was a divine word from God. And that divine word from God was essentially given at the same moment that God was using King Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem. Even though there is no mention of such a word from God to rebuild Jerusalem in all of Scripture. Further, that it was 62 weeks of years and not 69 weeks of years from the order to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed prince came because the first seven week segment overlapped within the next 62 week segment a seven week overlap and that the anointed prince was not Messiah it was the evil Antiochus Epiphanes. Now I must say that it's hard for me to even put this on our list 
of legitimate possibilities because the speculation is so expansive. The assumptions are without evidence and the math doesn't even add up. And yet, a sizable segment of Christian denominations and Bible scholars will not budge from this viewpoint. So let's see how that viewpoint works out if we apply a little logic to it. If we take 587 B.C. as the date that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, and that's the case, give or take a year, then that would be, according to them, when God supposedly gave His divine word to rebuild Jerusalem. And then if we go forward this 62 weeks of years that these scholars claim is correct, 434 years, we arrive at 153 B.C. And since these scholars say that the anointed prince was not Christ, it was Epiphanes, then according to their math, Epiphanes could not possibly appear prior to 153 B.C. Simple math. And yet we know from multiple reliable historical records that Epiphany's reign and life ended several years earlier than that in 164 BC. So I'll leave it up to you. You decide if you'd like to keep this particular theological viewpoint on your own personal list of the range of possibilities. It's not on mine. Now the other two mainstream viewpoints... On the 70 weeks begins with the assumption that the anointed prince is not Antiochus Epiphanes, but rather it's Jesus. But how they wind up getting there thereafter is quite different. One view is that indeed the seven weeks and the 62 weeks are consecutive, one right after the other, so there's a total of 69 weeks, 483 years, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah comes. And both assume that this decree is an actual decree of a real human earthly king, not a secret word of God that has no mention of it in the Bible. But where the differences begin is that one view is that it was in the seventh year of Artaxerxes of Persia when the decree was given. The other view is that it was in his 20th year. The first view is taken from Ezra chapter 7 when Artaxerxes orders the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Turn your Bibles to the book of Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. And we're going to read verses 8 through 16. We're going to start on page 1125, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, 1125. Ezra 7, starting at verse 8. We're going to go 8 through 16. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He began, going, uh, he, he, he began going up to Jerusalem from Babel on the first day of the first month and arrived on the first day of the fifth month since the good hand of his God was on him. 
For Ezra had set his heart on studying and practicing the Torah of Adonai and teaching Israel the laws and rulings. Here is the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest and the Torah teacher, the student of matters relating the student of matters relating to Adonai's mitzvot, his commandments and his laws for Israel, from Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the Cohen, scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Herewith I decree that everyone in my realm belongs to the people of Israel, including their priests and Levites, who of his own free will chooses to go with you to Jerusalem, should go. You are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire how the law of your God, of which you have expert knowledge, is being applied in Judah and Jerusalem. You are to bring with you the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have voluntarily offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem and together with all the silver and gold you receive throughout the province of Babel and the voluntary offerings of the people and the priests that have been offered willingly for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Okay. This narrative in Ezra 7, you can read the rest of it yourself, but this narrative in Ezra 7 occurred during Artaxerxes' seventh year, we're told. It concerned the temple. This decree to rebuild the temple, to deal with temple matters, this was given, we know, in 458 B.C. 458 B.C. However, the opposing view points out that this decree in his seventh year was not to rebuild Jerusalem, but only to rebuild the temple. So that's not what Daniel's prophecy is referring to. The opposing view takes its cue from the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Thus we read this in Nehemiah 2. You don't have to open, I'm just going to read it to you. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 5. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, it happened that I took the wine and I brought it to the king. And prior to then I had never appeared sad in his presence. And the king asked, why do you look so sad? You're not sick, so this must be some deep inner grief. And at this I became very fearful. As I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why shouldn't I look sad when the city, the place where my ancestors' tombs are, lies in ruins and its gates are completely burned up? And the king asked me, what is it that you want? I prayed to the God of heaven and then said to the king, If it pleases the king, if your servant has won your favor, send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' tombs, so that I can rebuild it. And while we won't definitively find King Artaxerxes making a decree to go rebuild Jerusalem, the ensuing verses and chapters makes it clear he approved of it, he supported the effort. Well, this event... And Nehemiah 2 happened, we're told, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. And that was in 445 B.C. 13 years after this same king had ordered the rebuilding of the temple. Therefore, from this viewpoint, 
It was 69 weeks of years, 438 years later from that date, 445 B.C., that Messiah ought to come. However, when we go forward from 445 B.C. by 483 years, we arrive at... 37 A.D. No Bible scholar that I'm aware of would accept that date for when Yeshua arrived, was born, or what it more likely meant that he was baptized by the Holy Spirit in the Jordan River and that started his ministry. However, if we take the view from the book of Ezra that it was in Artaxerxes' seventh year in 458 B.C. that ought to be our starting point. And the order to rebuild the temple can be assumed as one and the same to, to, to rebuild Jerusalem. We get an amazingly intriguing possibility. Because if we start at 458 B.C., go forward by those 69 weeks of years, 483 years, as the prophet says, we arrive at 20. 25 A.D. Oh, within a narrow window of time that could be assigned to Jesus' baptism, which is when he was consecrated into his earthly ministry and could rightly be considered as that moment when the anointed prince comes. So, with that, we now have possibilities, numbers 2 and 3 to consider that we could add to the first possibility I gave you that the count of years from the order to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah comes begins with Nebuchadnezzar and ends with Antiochus Epiphanes now I favor this last possibility it starts the count in 458 BC is the most likely because it not only fulfills the prophecy and the supporting scriptures but it also works hand in glove within the bounds of historical fact Yet, we cannot so easily now just discard the other possibilities because none of them, none of the possibilities are without flaws and difficulties. Rather, with this information now, we should watch, we should wait, and we should stay alert. Verse 26 tells us that after 62 weeks, 434 years, that Messiah will be cut off and he will have nothing. This also corresponds with verse 25 that says that for 62 weeks Jerusalem will remain built. But the times will be very troubling. Thus continuing to assume that the 62 weeks comes immediately after this initial seven weeks then the total elapsed time is 69 weeks or 483 years of course the alternative view is we're only dealing with symbolism so none of the different times or segments of years given to us even matter but if you're like me it's difficult to imagine these years as having no tangible meaning whatsoever then why use them at all and especially why go so far as to break down the 70, week, uh, 70 years into three different segments. No two segments being the same if none of it has any actual basis in time. 
regardless of which viewpoint one adopts, Messiah being cut off is said to happen during a time when Jerusalem exists. That's an important point. He comes when Jerusalem is still built. It's not been destroyed yet. Even though it will be during troubling times for the people of Jerusalem and Israel. So we're going to close today with this thought. Please notice the phrase, important phrase, in verse 26 that says that the Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. The Hebrew word for cut off is karet. Karet. Now we've talked about this important Hebrew word on numerous occasions and the point of it is that it often carries with it a dual meaning. Especially when being cut off is a punishment for violating God's law. Karet is usually used in the Bible as a judicial word that speaks of a certain negative consequence that results from a guilty verdict. You're declared guilty. That is, when a person is karet as a judgment for sin, it means they are cut off physically, they are forcefully separated from their family and their community, maybe even by death, and they are forcefully, spiritually separated from God as a decision and a punishment by God. Here in verse 26, we're told that this is what will happen to Messiah. Could that actually apply to Christ? Could he be cut off, correct? by God his Father, forcefully separated from him, as predicted here in Daniel 9? Well, listen to Matthew chapter 27, verses 43 to 46. We're at the crucifixion site. He trusted God, so let him rescue him if he wants. After all, he did say, I'm the Son of God. Even the robbers nailed up with him, insulted him in that same way. From noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, all the land was covered with darkness. And at about three, Yeshua uttered a loud cry, Eli, Eli, Lama Shabbatani, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? All the sins of the world were heaped upon Yeshua's shoulders as he was dying, suffocating, nailed to that cross. He was essentially being punished by his Father for everything, from murder to adultery to petty theft. He had done none of these things, of course, but he was our innocent substitute in the same way all of those bulls and goats were for centuries. And part of the punishment decreed by the law of Moses for the worst of those crimes was, you guessed it, karet. Our Savior was cursed 
with Kareth. So that we don't have to be. On that cross, Yeshua was separated from His people and He was deserted by His Father. The God of the universe for our sakes. Next week we'll deal with the 70th week of Daniel.